Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Medical device product developers, let me start today's episode with two questions. Do you want the right answers? Or are you more interested in asking the right questions? Think about that for a second or two. Yes, these questions are important. And they really are the essence of verification and validation. On today's episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I once again talk with Mike Drews. Mike is with Vascular Sciences. He consults with medical device companies all over the world with FDA, Health Canada, and other regulatory bodies as well. And today he and I dive into some depth and detail on verification and validation. Process, design, software, yeah, all of the above. We explore how these topics are important to making sure that your medical devices are safe and effective. So be sure to listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, as always, and the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru. Today we have a topic that, well, if you're in the medical device industry and you're bringing new products to market, this is a topic that applies to you. The topic, broadly speaking, is design verification and design validation. Today, Mike Drews and I, Mike with Vascular Sciences, he consults with medical device companies, FDA and Health Canada. Today, Mike and I are going to dive into the differences between verification and validation and why that matters. Mike, once again, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to be with you and your audience. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And John, just to kick things off, one of the common questions that I get, and I'm sure that you get it as well, is we use this phrase verification and, va- and validation or in the vernacular V&V, but what exactly does that mean and what's the difference between the two? Right. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. And, and I, I always, whenever I'm asked that question, I, I have to ask the person's context because as you said, or hinted at maybe VMV or verification and validation, those terms are used in a lot of different capacities. So I always ask the person, can you give me the adjective that uh, you're referring to? Are you talking about process? Are you talking about software? Are you talking about design? Because that, that adjective is very, very applicable to the, the impact that VMV has on whatever your question might be. But in the context of design verification and design validation, you know, that's very much a design control topic. And those actions mean something completely different. And Mike, this is a, I don't know if you remember how you and I uh, kind of first met, but, but uh, <laughs> you, wrote a, you wrote a blog post. Uh, actually, this kind of comes full circle for us a little bit today, but you wrote a blog post on, I don't remember the entire topic, but, but it did dive into verification and validation. It talked about design verification uh, being uh, proof or evidence that you designed the product correctly and design validation about making sure that you designed the correct product. That's correct, John. Uh, the difference between getting the right answer versus asking the right question. 
And I personally believe, and you're exactly right, you know, you and I have talked about this many times in the past. I personally believe that the focus should not be on getting the right answer, but rather, are we asking the right question? And whether we do that in the context of verification and validation or design controls or something else, it really doesn't matter. But you, in your in your comment a moment ago, John, you sort of differentiated. It, it, it depends on what your what your context is. In other words, the manufacturing process, the design, the software. And I would agree with you in the sense that the details of how you carry out the VNV under those different situations might differ, but fundamentally isn't the idea the the whole reason why we're doing the the vnv itself whether it's a manufacturing process or a design or software is it fundamentally is it the, isn't it the same thing you know I, I guess i've never really thought about it in that context before mike i always thought that that adjective was was the the differentiating factor but but as you ask that question it really got the gears turning and and i think fundamentally you're, you're correct i mean verification is is about demonstrating that your outputs and i and for those of you who can't uh, see, obviously this is an audio podcast not a video but but i used air quotes but the outputs verification is about proving that the outputs meet your inputs and it doesn't matter if it's a design control process or a manufacturing process or a software process. There are inputs and outputs. And verification is about demonstrating that those things have, in fact, met one another. And then, you know, to, to go from a validation standpoint, validation is about demonstrating that the the total output of whether it's design or manufacturing or, or software, whatever the case may be, it's about demonstrating that that total output meets what you wanted it to do to begin with, why you did that, why you started the design control process or why you started your manufacturing or why you started your software. So the validation is, is the proof or evidence that it meets those needs. I agree with you, John. And to help our audience understand, let me give an example. And I would love to hear your thoughts on how you approach this as well. But this is from the area of change management. And I did a column on this a few months ago. One of the most common questions that I get from medical device designers is if I want to make a change to my particular medical device, let's say that this device is already on the market. And for the sake of discussion, let's say it's a 510K device. If I want to make a change to this device, it could be a design change. It could be a, a manufacturing change. It could be a material change. It could be a lots of different things. If I want to make a change to this device, how do I know if I need to go to FDA to tell them about this in the form of a special 510K or on the PMA side of the world, a PMA supplement, versus if it's not a significant enough change, then I can handle that information internally doing what we call a, a letter to file. Right. And this is one of the most common questions that I get. It's also one of the, 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 the things that generates probably more problems for medical device companies than probably any other single thing. And again, I don't want to get too far into the details of how we handle that, but simply put, it comes down to the verification and validation. Right. In other words, you need to demonstrate first to yourself, to your own organization, that that change, whatever it is, 
will not affect the safety, efficacy, performance, and so on and so on of the device. That's not something that you can just uh, you know decide willy-nilly. You need to do a little bit of thinking. You need to do a little bit of investigation, maybe in terms of a literature search. You need to do maybe a little bit of benchtop testing. I'm not talking about turning this into a PhD dissertation, but you need to do a little bit of work in order to, to convince yourself of that. And to me, fundamentally, that's the V&V. Right. That's that's the whole essence of it. I don't know, John, if you've ever thought about it that way or if you have similar experiences when companies come to you and say, hey, John, we want to change our device. What exactly do we need to do? Right. I personally believe we should begin with the engineering and biology and not with the regulation. But that's my approach, John. What do you think? Well, I I, I think that's, you know, I, I generally agree with some of that, but I but I think to, to, to try to make a decision without you know, a regulatory context, I mean, obviously, eventually, you're going to have to cross that path, too. So, so a lot of the, the customers that I work with and advise, I, I want them to do factor that regulatory piece as to part of their, their decision making process. Now, don't mishear me, they should not be making decisions only because the regulation says so, they should be doing what makes good, as you've said before, prudent engineering sense. And, and they should make sure that the devices that they're developing are, and putting into the marketplace are safe and, and effective. And I think that that VMV uh, is all about demonstrating safe and effective, safe and effective. Uh, but, but doing so in a regulatory context is important because a lot of, a lot of companies that I work with, you know, they get their product through the design control process. They get it through their submission and then they launch into production and, and to assume that you're going to launch a product into production and never make a change is very naive. There are infinite reasons for why you will change your product. And it could be as simple as changing a logo on a label to as complex as having to change the, the entire materials uh, that are involved in that. And for any of those changes, I try to drive my customers, my the companies that I work with, I try to drive them towards understanding the impact of that change. And I think there is a lot of confusion about VNV, uh, making sure that you've conducted the necessary VNV activities before you actually implement that change. And I think another piece of that that you can't ignore is, is regulatory impact. Well, I agree with you, John. And let me just uh, clarify, because I don't want to be misunderstood here. When I say that we should not begin with the regulation, uh, that's not to imply that the regulation is not important. That's not to imply that we do not need to follow the rules. On the contrary, you know, rules are important. I'm not trying to advocate anarchy here. <laughs> but what I'm simply suggesting is we need to do what makes sense. Right. And we need to first understand from an engineering and a biology perspective what makes sense. And then we need to bring the regulation into it. Right. I was in a situation not long ago where somebody came to me. This was a VNV kind of a question. They were designing a test methodology, and they wanted my help to make sure that it met the design control, the VNV requirements. And I said, sure, I'd be more than happy to help you do that. But first, let me ask you a question. Why are you doing this test? He had no idea. Right. Right. Absolutely no idea. Now, to me, again, I'm not always, as my wife would say, the brightest bulb on the tree. But to me, what's the point of trying to understand what the VNV requirements are to design a test when you don't even know why you're doing the test to begin with? Yeah, that's that. And that that, Mike, is the essence, I think, uh, of this, because I I totally every day talk to people and they're they're going through the motions and. 
And they almost, you know, just blindly are following down this path or going down this path of, I need to do X, Y, and Z V and V activity because that's what I need to put in my submission. <laughs> it's like, and, and your question as to why, I mean, a, a, interesting story on, on my end. We recently went through an audit, not related to V and V, but uh, an ISO audit. And the ISO auditor was, was saying, Hey, we need to do a better job of root causes. And, and he's like, you know, here's a tool that I recommend. It's called the five whys. And the, you know, the five whys tool, I'm sure you've used that before or probably heard of that. Or if not, you, you have children and you can probably remember to when those children were a lot younger, like three, four, five, and they keep asking you the question, why, why, why? And that's the same context of the, this tool, but it can be very, very useful in a lot of applications, including things like verification and validation. If I am doing a test, I should be asking myself, why, why, mm -hmm. why? And I should keep asking myself why until I get to that root cause and understand. And if it's, if my answer, my root cause is just to satisfy a regulatory obligation, then I probably need to rethink my approach. I could not agree with you more, John. I've been in many situations, and I'm sure you have as well, where I'll be inside of a medical device company, and they'll be uh, doing tests. Uh, it could be benchtop test, it could be animal test, clinic, whatever. And I ask, why are you doing this test? And they either A, they'll say they don't know, or even worse, they'll say, because it's required. <laughs> and I would say, okay, but if it was not required by FDA or somebody else, would you do the test? They say no. Does the test provide any value? They say no. To me, doing something for no other reason than it's being required is not a very good justification for doing it. Now, again, let me be crystal clear. I'm not advocating anarchy. I'm not saying that rules are, are not important. Right. But in those situations, I will go to FDA and I will go to them prophylactically. I will not do this in my submission. I will go to them prophylactically in a pre-sub or something like that and say, here's what the regulation says. Here's what the guidance says. But in our particular case, it's not appropriate or perhaps it's not It's not possible. And here's why. Right. And here's what uh, makes sense to do instead. Right. So. And, and by the way, I see a lot of companies, they do that, but they do that in the regulatory submission, in the 510K or the de novo or whatever it is. In my opinion, although the regulation doesn't prevent you from doing that, that increases your regulatory risk tremendously. Yes. Because you're just about guaranteeing yourself a kickback on your submission. Yeah. And, um, and that's pretty late in the process, too. I mean, if, if I'm waiting to get some sort of – or if I'm making a lot of assumptions on V&V &V, – and and basically hoping and crossing my fingers that by doing so in a in a de novo or five ten k, that's pretty late in the process. I I, I like the the suggestion that you have of of getting some some feedback from FDA uh, or regulatory body much much earlier in the process through the pre sub program. And if you're outside the U.S., you can certainly talk to notified bodies and about that long before you put together that that official submission. I agree. You and I are, are very much singing the song, same song on this, John. There is nobody that's a bigger fan of communication with FDA or any regulatory agency than I am. I will communicate much more frequently than any regulation ever requires me to communicate. But there's a caveat to that. One of my mantras in regulatory, as you know, has become tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. Yeah. It amazes me how many people literally walk into FDA <laughs> and ask FDA, what do I do? 
Yeah, like, and, like the FDA is their consultant, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> and in my opinion, that's a terrible strategy for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's not FDA's job to tell us what to do. It's our job to know what to do. That's number one, and to sell it to FDA. But second is when you ask that question at FDA, you're opening up a Pandora's box and you have absolutely no idea what you're going to get in return. Careful what you ask for, right? Exactly right. So I spend a lot of my time actually helping people, helping companies prepare for pre-subs and actually doing pre-subs. I'm down now doing pre-subs at FDA pretty much once a month, if not even a little bit more. So there's no bigger fan of communication with the agency than I am. But remember that caveat, tell, don't ask, yeah. lead, don't follow. Here's what makes sense. And here's why it makes sense. And by the way, I don't even end my presentations at FDA by asking, are there any questions? Because believe me, if there are reviewers in the room and if they have questions, they will ask they will them. Ask. That's their job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's interesting because you know, if you look at kind of the the guidelines for a pre-submission, and I know we're we're maybe on a slight tangent, we'll bring it back to V and V here in a moment. But that there is that section on that or the expectation on a pre-sub that you list all the questions that you want to know from from FDA. And I just reviewed a, a pre-sub from someone the other day and, and they had a long list of questions. And my comment to them was expect an answer for every question that you ask and realize that you may not like some of the answers that you get. And although the the con or the response from the FDA and your pre-sub may be non-binding by the agency, expect that if they provide you some guidance or direction or recommendation on the things that you should do, uh, I you can bet quite a bit that they're going to be looking for that when it comes time for you to put together that formal submission. Well, you're right, John, and you may not have realized it, but you've just hit on one of the things that causes my blood pressure to go up higher <laughs> than almost anything else. One of the very few... You seem so calm today. <laughs> <laughs> I try. Uh, one of the very few requirements of the pre-sub request, it's actually, it's 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 a very simple thing to, to request a, a pre-submission meeting with the FDA, but one of the, the three requirements, as you just described, is we have to submit our questions to FDA in advance. And to me, this violates one of my most basic rules, and that is never, ever, ever, ever ask FDA a question. It's just, it's, it, it, and so I personally, perhaps I shouldn't say this in a recorded podcast, I personally find it condescending of FDA to insist that I have to ask them questions. But the, here's the problem. In order to qualify, in order to get the meeting scheduled, in order to jump through that regulatory hoop, we have to give them some questions. So here's my advice. And I do think that we should uh, talk about this in more detail. I'm getting, on, I'm getting on the edge of my seat, by the way, Mike, because this, this seems like this is very helpful. Yeah, but here's my adv advice. When we craft those questions, we did another pro podcast where I talked about designing your labeling, for example, designing your indication for use statements by doing a lot of wordsmithing and so on and so on. I take exactly the same approach. I design those questions such that I create what my attorney friends call leading questions. And that is in coming to an answer to that question, they can only answer it. Sorry, they can only answer the question. We, we create a it's, leading it's that, question. It's the blood pressure thing, right? I guess it's <laughs> up a little bit. Yeah, thank you. We, we designed this leading question so that, the so that the only answer they can come to is the answer that we want them to come to. Right. This is why the attorneys call it a leading question. Right. So the unfortunate reality, the way the pre-sub process has, has been created 
And I philosophically, I love the pre-sub process, but I just have a real problem with this one requirement. In order to get the meeting scheduled, you have to submit questions to FDA. Right. And so be very careful. Uh, and you described this a moment ago. You ask your questions, but you might not uh, get the answers that you want. So to, say, to, say, it how another, you them. Yeah, to say it another way, Mike, so what you're saying is ask the question in a way that gives me the answer that I want. Bingo. That's exactly right. Thank you, John. You said it much simpler than I did, uh, but that's exactly right. Well, I mean, you've you've been through this. You know, like you said, you're you're down at FDA dealing with pre-subs uh, month after month after month, and so you've got a lot of that experience. So, so all right. So let's bring the topic back to to the VMV topic that we started with. Uh, although you know we've been really kind of dancing around, and all of this does apply. But but I want to share a, a short story about a startup company. And it is a, a VMV related story, and they are uh, they're, they're early stage, but they're all about this first in man FIM. You know, they've even uh, crafted an acronym about this first in man, first in man, and and they're uh, they're very let's say investor. Is that, is that a politically incorrect phrase nowadays, John? I, you know, I I don't I don't know. I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> um, but but they are they're all about getting their their device used. On humans, basically, right, and and they've been going down this path of animal study after animal study after animal study, and you know, scouring the globe to figure out where they can establish a protocol and and actually build units and go to that country wherever it might be, and you know, even if it's a country that that we didn't even know was on the globe, they're going there to to use their product in a first in man study, like that's what's motivating them, and I'm thinking to myself. Wow, you know, there's so much more from a VMV perspective that is important that you could probably demonstrate before focusing on on that first in man. So I'll stop there. I'll get your comments about that. Well, I think that's a good point, John, and I and I'll share uh, sort of a similar experience from my world in tying the VNV into the the regulatory a little bit more uh, in some of the early first in man or first in human kind of uh, studies, uh, and that is in low risk, in what we call non-significant risk or NSR kinds of devices. Because as you and your audience probably know, if you're working on an NSR device, you do not need an IDE. That is, you do not need FDA's permission, in air quotes, to begin your clinical study. You only need the permission of the institutional review boards or the IRBs. And in an NSR study, the VNV becomes even more important because the FDA is not going to be looking at it before it goes into the people. Therefore, the only people that are going to be looking at it is the IRB. And in that sense, the IRB, if they're doing their job, and let's be honest, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. If they're doing their job, they should be asking many of the kinds of questions about biocompatibility, about right deliverability, about ergonomics, all those kinds of things that they normally would not ask about because the FDA would ask about them. Right. But because it's NSR, because there's no IDE, the FDA does not get involved. Now, one other thing, and I'll let you add on to this, John. I still, in those situations, uh, we talked about pre-subs a moment ago, I still go to FDA in advance and I say, listen, as a matter of professional courtesy, we don't have to come to you. We're not coming to you and asking your permission. But as a matter of professional courtesy, we want to let you know, here's our device. 
Here's the way it works. Here's what we're saying about it. Here's the clinical trial that we're starting. It is non-significant risk, and here are all the reasons why. I just kind of put all those cards on the table just to make sure that everybody sees it the way I do, just to make sure that we don't have a problem later on. But coming back to the VNV piece, if you're working on a 510K device that does require clinical data, and it is a NSR device, Keep in mind that FDA, although according to the regulation, does not have to be involved formally. It's only the IRB. The IRB is probably going to be asking you those VNV kinds of questions and taking it a step further. My suggestion is considering to consider taking it to the FDA anyway, even though you're not required to, just to kind of make sure that everything passes the sniff test. Anything you want to add to that, John? Well, I- Maybe a slight twist. I mean, a company developing a an, a new device, they uh, they always seem very interested in getting uh, that clinical actual use experience. And I would say, you know, the other thing that I, I always find intriguing is a company who is very very early. They basically just have one prototype or maybe a couple of prototypes, and they want to go down this NSR path even before they've really desi- fully designed their product. They've just you know kind of excuse the expression, but hack something together in order to to get into actual use to be able to see, you know, use that clinical use as a means to help them almost really determine what the design needs to be. And sometimes I think that that's a little backwards. I agree. Stephen Covey said, begin with the end in mind. And I think that's a lesson that we can apply here. Figure out where you want to be at the end of the game and then work backwards to make sure that we end up in in that right place. And it sounds like a very simple idea, and in fact, it really is, but it's amazing to me how few people actually do it. Uh, I don't remember if I've shared the story with you, and and I won't do it on today's podcast, but but, I can very distinctly remember my first uh, experience, a clinical experience with a device that I designed and developed. I was present for the the use, the first use of of this particular device many, many years ago. And I can remember that whole, but I had gone through the entire design and development process. I had worked with the clinicians early on. I had had some proof of concept prototypes and concepts and so on, but but I tried to cast a wide net and get their feedback and, and understand the clinical need that we were trying to solve, of course, and then took it through all the, the VNV activities, biocompatibility, performance testing, and all the things that went along with that. Uh, but the clinical use is obviously important for any technology. And I realize there's a marketing need in, in a lot of cases. And in other cases, there is a, a, an actual regulatory need to be able to demonstrate that my product works. But I think sometimes companies get too hung up on that, on that actual clinical use. And they put so much weight on animal studies and clinical studies that they forget how to be good engineers in the process. I think there's a certain degree of truth to that. I, I, I got to give you give you that. I think there are pros and cons to everything. As my grandmother used to say many years ago, that's why they make chocolate and vanilla. <laughs> uh, so I think there's a place for benchtop testing. I think there's a place for animal and for clinical testing, obviously. And we have to recognize that no kind of test or computational testing as well, no kind of test is going to be perfect. There's going to be limitations. And, you know, early on in my career, I spent a lot of my time when I first started consulting for FDA, evaluating people's uh, testing methodologies uh, when they came in as part of a submission. Another thing that you're, you're hinting at, and this could be a topic of a different conversation as well, is the whole aspect of usability testing or human factors or ergonomics, whatever it is that you want to uh, call it. So 
John, I'm sure that you and I can go on you know, talking <laughs> like this forever. I think this is fun. But your audience probably has lives and they have other things to do. To kind of wrap this up, what do you think is the most important thing that people should remember about VNV moving forward? Well, I think the most important thing is is realize that verification specifically does not always mean a test. Uh, as an engineer, I may have a, a propensity or an interest or a, a desire to do some sort of test to get hands on to 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 break something or to prove something through some sort of testing method. But sometimes verification can be much much simpler than than a, a test. Sometimes I can do some sort of analysis. Sometimes I can do some sort of inspection, and that is more than sufficient to address my need to prove that my outputs meet my inputs. I think that's an excellent takeaway message, John. Thank you for sharing that. My message would be something a little bit similar, but I'm going to take this maybe to a slightly higher level. It does have V&V &V implications, but it has broader implications as well. One of the most common questions that I get from medical device companies across the board is, Mike, you work for a lot of different medical device companies. You also consult for FDA in Canada and Singapore and other countries. If we came to the FDA with our new widget, with our new medical device, what do you think they would want to see in terms of safety, efficacy, performance, V&V, &V, whatever you want to call it? And I say to them, okay, I understand that's an important question to you. I understand why you're asking it. But let's look at it from a slightly different perspective. Sooner or later, a family member, a friend, perhaps even ourself, is going to be on the receiving end of that medical device. When, they, when that day comes, what do we individually, what would you, John, as an individual, need to see in terms of safety, efficacy, performance, in order to put your personal stamp of endorsement, if you will, on that device. In other words, in order to say that that device is okay to be used in my spouse, in my child, perhaps even in myself. Then and only then should we go to FDA or Canada or whoever it is and have a discussion as to doing what makes sense. Right. Again, I think there has become so much emphasis on simply following the regulation like a recipe. There's an adage that we use in medicine frequently, the surgery went perfectly, but the patient died anyway. The engineering equivalent of that is we designed the medical device perfectly, but the patient died anyway. The regulatory equivalent of that is we followed the regulation perfectly. We did all that FDA asked us to do, and yet the patient died anyway. The, these things actually happen more often than some people might think. And the only solution to mitigate or hopefully eliminate that is to get people to think. Right. And that's not something that is so easy to do. So that's my takeaway message. Yes, it applies to VNV, but it applies more broadly than that as well. Right. right. So, Mike, uh, we, as you mentioned, we have a good time on these podcasts, and we can certainly go on and on and on. And maybe we can put together a whole unabridged series of books on the topic that we can uh, have people download and listen to on their drive to work. But today, we're going to wrap that up. And again, you can find Mike Drew's. Mike is a prolific author and speaker and consultant when it comes to medical device industry and FDA and Health Canada. Look him up. Look up Vascular Sciences. Mike Drews, D-R-U-E-S. He's all over LinkedIn. 
He's all over the internet. Just do a quick search and you'll find some wonderful information that Mike shares with the industry. This has been John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru. And this has been another exciting episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast.